Hi, everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know, not to know what you believe, why you believe it. It's really just about journeying along this journey of faith with people that you trust and with our God who helps us understand and explore things together. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. If you're somebody who typically listens to this with kids, this is probably not the best episode to do that. Uh, We're not going to get graphic or anything like that, but, uh, you know, we're talking about some complex things that'll be really hard for kids to be able to talk to to hear and to hear well. And so we just want to give that a little bit of a warning. If you typically listen to this podcast with kids, today would probably be a time not to do that. All right, now that your kids are out of the room, <laughs> uh, let us uh, start talking about uh, gay theology. Uh, and that's not a technical word. I know that there is a field called queer theology. We're not going to dive into that because I'm not an expert in that. Me I don't either. think Ryan is. I, you know, what we're doing today is more of gay theology because it's been uh, both of our journey regarding that. Um, and I suppose you could say because I'm gay, I do gay theology in a sense, but like they said, it's not, we're not, we're not doing anything technical that would, well, it might fall under some umbrella of queer theology, but that's not what we're talking about specifically. Yeah. So this, this podcast, this episode is very much going to feel unfinished because uh, many of you who are listening to this typically come from a conservative uh, theological background. And our guess is that you probably have been thinking these things, or at least you know people who have thought these things. And we're not, as usual, we're not going to come to an answer. Except that I do know this a little better just through virtue of lived experience, right? So, um, and I, I don't know that I have the answer, but I have come to some answers for myself. And we'll talk about that and you know, whatever. But um, no, I, I too have not solved all of the problems. Uh, if you have, please send us an email yes. and uh, <laughs> let us know and uh, we'll go from there. Let's jump into this. We're going to talk about uh, gay theology, as we said, and we, we've really been thinking about what's a good entry point into this. And um, the more and more I thought about it, and the more and more Ryan uh, talked with me about it, we're going to talk about something called orders of creation. And when it comes to creation, just so we're all on the same page, in the narrative itself, Adam is created first. He's created by uh, God breathing into the ground. And then when there's no suitable helper felt with it, or found within the animal kingdom, if you will, um, God puts Adam to sleep and takes a rib out and makes Eve. And Eve comes from Adam, and Adam comes from God in this theology of the orders of creation. So that's kind of the general idea behind that. But, you know, what's the significance of that for this discussion? So for this discussion, the significance starts with a very important detail, at least from my tradition, and that is that um, man was created first and has certain ways of acting and living in the relationship with woman. And woman was created from man. And I I said that in the summary, instead of explicitly from God. And in some of the theology, it sounds really bad, and rightfully so. It sounds misogynistic. It's bad, yeah. Um, But what they're trying to get at in this theology called the orders of creation is in the text, they're asking a question, is it significant? And they're answering in the positive. Is it significant that Adam was created first and differently than Eve? And if it is significant, what does that significance mean? Mm. And in a misogynistic patriarchal uh, theology, uh, that means that man is above woman in some sense of the word. And, and we're, I'm trying to stay vague at first because later we'll get into how that specifically plays out. But it, no matter how it plays out, depending on the expression that I've heard in our church body, in our uh, heritage, the one that I grew up in, 
it was very clear that man was above woman, husband above wife. And it's almost kind of like that divine monarchy type thing that because God uh, ordained man in such a way uh, that he gave the right to man to be over woman. Oh, boy. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's, it's just, yeah. I mean, I hope I'm not getting ahead of you here, but I remember we were in that class we had together and the professor said at one point he had this argument based in Hebrew grammar that I think was full of shit. But anyway, where he said that, <laughs> you know, man was created in God's image, whereas woman was created in, in man's image. Yeah. And I, I, was, I think I said to him, and I never really said much to this guy because he was a terrible professor and kind of a scary human. But I, I said, no, wait a minute, I can't argue with your Hebrew grammar, but that is just not okay. Like, as I say, women are made in the image of God in the exact same way that men are you know, but anyway, we'll get there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch of the imagination. Well, it yeah. does sound to me like at least it has the facade of what Hebrew, sorry, what Jewish theology sounds like. Yeah. However, well, like your group was the first one to come up with this idea. Right, right. However, I think even in Jewish theology, they pose these as possibilities rather than literal interpretations, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're asking a question. I just did something with Moses in the Exodus and, and asking, how do, why is it that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? You know, a classical question. Tough question, yeah. Yeah. And the Talmud and uh, even contemporary Jewish theologians, the way that they treat that story is not the way that conservative Christians would treat the story. No. Right? So they're not trying to find the answer. They're posing certain possibilities, and the Talmud is just uh, an argument or you know, right. academic argument about all of those things. As, as I understand it, even like if you're in a synagogue and the, the large copy of the Torah that they read from will often have, you know, there's the verses and then all of the, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says this means this, and then they mm -hmm. argue with each other and because that's kind of how Jewish theology works. Yeah. Uh, we could learn something from that, but that's a separate topic. <laughs> yeah. So with that said, I think there's something like the spirit of Jewish theology or the facade, I think is a better way to say it, of Jewish theology there. But I would say that the text itself does not indicate that there's any importance to this. The Which text itself does not. It's ironic because I seem to remember even like that professor, but when I hear people talk about this, they claim that the reason it is that way is because they're sticking to what the text says, right? Like right. They're getting this like, well, this is what the Bible says, so it's right there kind of idea. But you're a narrative guy. It, it's actually fulfilling a piece of the narrative, right? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's not talking about the subject at all, I don't think, partly yeah. because it wouldn't ask those questions. I mean, I'm not trying to say that in the ancient Near East, whenever Genesis was written by whomever, that that person would not have, you know, viewed women as inferior because he they probably would've. did, you know. Yeah. <laughs> did. But the way that we're asking these questions would not have been on anybody's mind. Right. And I don't think that they would seriously read the text that way. That's a really hard leap to suggest. But right. at, the very, at the very least, if it were to be a reading, it would be a reading in conversation, in argumentation with other readings that other scholars or other practitioners would have. Right. Yeah, because it seems like in terms of the narrative, this is just this is setting up the characters, right? I mean, this the characters at this point are God, Adam, and Eve. And mm -hmm. now that we have the characters in front of us, um, what do they do? What happens? And that's how we get into the garden and the fall and all of that stuff. But, I mean, I really think we're trying too hard here. Uh, yeah. You know, God makes man, I think, because God wanted to, right? And then man is lonely, so God makes woman. I mean, that's that's, I think, what we're supposed to get from that, not this yeah. polluted uh, order of uh, one is over the other kind of stuff. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like, if there's a meaning to the text in the way that, you know, we're trying to talk theologically meaningful, it would be that man is not meant to be alone, which right. is exactly what God says. Right. And God tries to work it out. I always wondered as a kid, 
why Adam didn't love a dog, you know, because because <laughs> dogs are better than most people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, now that I'm adult, I understand uh, much yeah. more. Um, but, yeah, that would be the meaning. The meaning is that we are meant for community uh, relationship at the very least. And I think you can extrapolate it to community because it's just yeah. more relationships. But yeah, anything further, it kind of moves away from the text and starts talking about theology, which if you've been following my story in these podcasts, that is always like an indicator for me that maybe something's going awry here, that we're too interested in talking about theology and not about what the text is saying. Well, especially with narrative texts, uh, we so quickly jump to finding the principles and the theology in them that we forget that we're reading a story. Yeah. And I don't even mean that in the sense of you can decide whether you think Adam and Eve are real people or not. But I'm just saying in terms of the form of the text that we have, we're talking, we're reading a story. That the story is about the creation of the universe and of man and woman. And so, like, why are we running straight to... <laughs> <laughs> and this is what it means for us 4,000, however many thousand years later. And it means, you know, hierarchy, men are better than women. And it's just like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. you know, like even with like, you know, story books, they make you read in English class. They don't usually make you make conclusions on page two. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So in terms of your journey then, so like, was it that you decided that was, you know, you rejected it entirely or what? Like, so what, that was kind of your starting point, it sounds like. Yeah. And really, I just, you know, of course it just started with the question, but the resolution, if you will, around that question was, I just, you know, we teased it out here. It's just really hard for me to think that you can make a, a complex theology out of the orders of creation in that way. From Genesis, from Genesis specifically, um, it just seems like such a, a big stretch well, to do. Yeah, and I think for me, um, putting aside all of the arbitrarily imposed things we've been talking about, I think for me, the reason it ultimately doesn't work is because it's the basis of all arguments used to oppress women by yeah. men and by, right. by you know, Christian men. And so it doesn't seem to me, especially since this is before sin has even shown up in the story, that I just don't think that for my own reading of this story, that that God would establish the order of creation, so to speak, in a way that lets one, in this case, like lets man rule over woman in this way that hurts her. You know, that's a really good thought because in in my tradition that that would be a huge thing that they would say is they would say sin has mucked this up like it, it before creation when it was created this way it worked perfectly yeah but that's a cop out too because it's still privileging one over the other and the only distinction is which one god created first exactly those physical distinctions but i mean like like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I get what they're saying, but that's not enough. I, not for me, anyway. I think that that lets it off the hook too easily. No, and I mean, rhetorically, what's just happening, or let's say logically what's happening, is they're just defending a conclusion rather than following the text where it's going. It seems to me, then, that they must they must have some knowledge of the fact that this is somewhat problematic, right? Because otherwise, why would they need to justify it? So, I mean, the point is not so we can tear this to shreds as much as just like, I think this is kind of what we both did with this idea, um, coming at it from different sides. I mean, partly for me, I came from a tradition that, while its results have been very mixed, um, has, at least in terms of officially and, and in lots of cases, affirmed you know the roles of women in, in that women can be pastors and all of this, and then it's had some struggles along the way. But I could never square this kind of idea of the so-called order of creation and a tradition that does and says all of those things because um, mm. it doesn't make it doesn't fit. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Do you think it's got something to do with where we're heading, which is um, the vulnerability and the intimacy of marriage that 
men would have a really hard time of letting that go. I mean, I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. Well, I'm not sure. So tell me more about what, what you mean. So um, it's one thing to let a, a woman be a pastor, for instance, because in that relationship, um, many Americans especially, and we're talking practical theology here, not necessarily the systematic stuff, um, men can at least say, well, I don't agree with whatever the pastor is saying, which happens all the effing time, right? <laughs> He's um, not the pastor. <laughs> happens all the time, uh, which is good at some level, but at another level, it's completely annoying. Um, and I think that a lot of at least patriarchal men would say that if a woman's talking about love too much or whatever, that that's just her hormones or whatever, you know, the terrible stuff that men say. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a marriage to really suggest that a woman is not below you, a wife is not below you means something uh, like you have to give something up. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of it, it, it is male centric, but there's also a people element to this that people just don't like to give that kind of stuff up. Um, and in our culture, men have built themselves up to be, you know, like breadwinners and this, that, and the other. And so I wonder if that's part of it too, because the intimacy and the vulnerability of saying, uh, wife, you are the same as me, um, that that's kind of an, a hard, a very hard bridge to cross. Well, I mean, it's like anything else, I think, in the sense that it's hard to give up privilege, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think anybody would seriously argue that men, especially straight white men in America, don't have privilege, right? I mean, okay, you'll find that they're wrong. Um, (laughs) Like, (laughs) so yeah, it's really hard to give any of that up, right? Like, I mean, I think the natural response for most humans would be to think of yourself first. That's the natural response that we have, right? We're inherently selfish creatures most of the time. But I think that's another reason to rethink that. But um, yeah, I think it is hard because you do have to give something up. You know, trying to find equality in a relationship is never going to be the easy way to do it. Especially in those harder times where you both want different things or you want the same thing in different ways. And sometimes you have to not get what you want because right. of the other person. And that's hard to do. You know, I mean, it's hard to do sometimes because we all want what we want. Yeah. Like for me, that's where misogyny really becomes problematic. Yeah. It's, it's always problematic. Like, you know, we can't have a woman president who says so that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, um, it seems like that's almost safer and easier. Yeah. Well, safer, certainly. And maybe even kind of a red herring. It's kind of getting away from the problem of the relationships people have with one another. And, allows people to argue for stuff like orders of creation when really what we need to be talking about is, Hey, how are you treating the women in your life? Well, I mean, yeah. And I, I mean, specifically, yes, men and women, but honestly, how are you treating everybody in your life? Right. Because that's the idea we're getting at here is especially once we get to the new Testament is that relationships aren't supposed to be hierarchical in that way. (laughs) whatever relationship it is, I guess, outside of, you know, you work for somebody and they are your boss. Sure. But that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, uh, in his very famous example of what it looks like to live in the kingdom, he washes his disciples' feet and tells them, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you yeah. want to be like me, you got to bow down and do this. And he eats with the guy who's going to betray him, knowing right. that he's going to. So, Yeah. So let's transition because I think that's a really good place. Then, then why does Paul, when he talks about marriage, why does he seem to talk about it in an orders of creation way? As far as why Paul would be, because that's where most of this comes up. Um, you know, the Pharisees will ask Jesus questions about marriage, but that's always some kind of theological trap. It's not really what we're what we're talking about. And so a lot of it comes from Paul, you know, because Paul says things specifically about households and how husbands and wives should relate to each other and families and children and all of that kind of thing. 
And I think you're going to see a lot of the same patriarchal and I would even say misogynistic stuff in some of that because Paul was raised in that same culture, right? I mean, Paul was trained by uh, as a Pharisee and he lived in a world that saw women in that way, you know, and it's not even like the, the Hebrews were the ones to come up with this stuff. I mean, pretty much this has been the universal experience of men and women, right? Men are in charge, women are subservient or oppressed, yeah. however you want to say that. So, I mean, I think on that hand, you're going to see it because that was Paul's world. I mean, and you can even look at all of the, you know, some of them were precursors and some were contemporaries, but everyone from Aristotle to Josephus to, you know, take your pick of philosopher or Roman, you know, orator or whoever it is, they're all going to be saying this same kind of stuff. Um, some of it much worse than others. But so, I mean, I think you're going to see that because that's what Paul knows. Um, he probably would sign on with some of the stuff that we said. I think. I mean, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think so. I think he would sign on to it. And I think you're right. Uh, it is so much of this just feels like it's cultural. That's, that's what I just can't escape. Like mm -hmm. Paul, Paul, even though he talks about walking away from being a Pharisee, he's very much, and I'm not, not criticizing Pharisees. It's just the, the way that they think about things. The they argue too. Yeah. He doesn't get away from that. I don't know uh, if it, you could. Yeah. I don't know if you could either. If you're trained that way and you have, I mean, it was such a radical break for him. Um, yeah. I, I mean, don't think you can get away from it. Not as radical as it gets. Yeah. So I just, I don't think we can say and, and this is, you know, we get into layers upon layers because there's this mytho mythology that Jesus solves all the problems, like he's magic Jesus. Um, so <laughs> Paul, on his conversion road to Damascus, he eventually becomes this superstar. Not eventually, he immediately becomes a superstar who knows all theology, knows this, that, and the other. I don't think anybody explicitly, certainly academics don't explicitly say that, but the way we talk about him and the way we think about him is kind of contextual-less or cultural-less. Well, especially in the conservative, whether that's evangelical or not, Protestant Christians, um, I mean, we depend on Paul an awful lot for everything. Um, you know, Paul is mm -hmm. kind of the interpreter of Jesus. I mean, he is that. That's what he does. But I think even to the point of we privilege Paul, I know you guys certainly do, and I think we do too. Um, Paul is kind of the lens through we view a lot of everything else. Yeah. And the the challenge with Paul, I think, is if we view him as a lens to everything else without the cultural context of who Paul was, then it's really easy to see orders of creation as a purely theological thing. I mean, I think it's a good example of what we've talked about before of uh, it's running straight to the doctrine and not considering the implications of that doctrine. Um, and not just in terms of oppression, like we've talked about, although that's probably the biggest one. But I mean, it's not even considering what that means in the lives of people who just don't fit into that pair somehow, right? So what does the orders of creation have to say to the single mother? Not much, right? Right. Um, or who, whatever it is. Um, or Outside to, of shame and guilt and Right, whatever. exactly. So, I mean, I think, I think that's what you see there. And, you know, we probably should acknowledge that even with all that, Paul was in some places, or at least whoever claiming to be Paul, like, I don't know that Paul wrote everything that's given to him, but we'll just say it's all Paul for ease of discussion, um, that, you know, he is, in some ways, he's better than the world around him, because he does also say things like, um, he does say women submit to your husbands, but then he says that husbands should give up their lives for their wives, you know, love her as Christ loved the church. And I think you do have to recognize that that is a pretty big deal. In, in some ways, that is a pretty big step forward. But this is also the guy that says women can't talk in church. They should have their heads covered. Um, you know, they need to submit to their husbands, all of that. So Paul just doesn't get where I think he needs to get. But I don't want to ignore the fact that he does 
he is better than at least that we know of, of a lot of his contemporaries. Yeah. And I think it's really important to pause for just a second because what, what I don't want us to do is just parrot patriarchy bad. Um, is it is yes, but, but it's more complicated than that. It's more complicated. And I think the caricature of conservatives, when they start to hear stuff like patriarchy, misogyny, especially when it comes to Paul is, is that they think that what happens is people are doing baby in the bathwater type stuff. Oh, we should, they think we should just throw everything out because some of the things he says aren't great. Is that what they, you mean? They conservatives think that's what uh, just use the other side of the equation. That's what they think liberals are doing. Um, and, and that's not what we're doing because we don't really classify ourselves as liberals anyway. There's many problematic readings that are called liberal. Yeah. Um, but, but we're not saying that we want to say Paul is terrible because everything Paul does is awful because of his patriarchy, even around um, gender roles and that. And that's exactly what you just said is, yeah. well, Paul is getting us closer and I think what it kind of shows is how maybe Paul isn't leaning into his patriarchy as much as others would. Right. But he's still steeped in it because, right. you know, I mean, it's, I think as much as I wish the Bible were not this way sometimes, I think, you know, the Bible is a collection of ancient documents along, you know, across many cultures, different languages, geographic locations, all of that. And I think, Man, it would be great if the Bible just said, um, you know, misogyny is terrible, don't do it. Or uh, slavery is always evil, stop it, you know. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. And I think that's frustrating because we want it to do that. I think you do see, however, that scripture is like the story from creation onwards, I do think is a story of redemption in a progressive sense, in that. I think you see that when people follow what God would have them follow, things do get better. But I don't think, you know, that just because the canon of scripture is closed, that we can therefore say it's as good as it's going to get. And I don't know that anybody is saying that, but all I'm trying to point out is that we, we, if we depend on scripture to explicitly explain all of the problems away or tell us how to solve all of the problems, we're going to be disappointed because it just doesn't do that. Exactly. And I think if we were to push into Paul a little bit is I, what I love what you were saying in the beginning too. Um, so I want to affirm the latter, but the beginning you were talking about how we see in scripture you take take many of the people like Abraham is a really good example. He's somebody that sends his wife into the beds of Egyptians because weird he doesn't. Stuff, yeah, yeah, weird stuff. He does right, it more by, than once, I think. Yeah. He does, yeah, and brings plagues upon the people. It's like a lot of the times the people come out and say, "Dude, why didn't you just tell us she was your wife?" Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, but by the end of it, you know, Abraham's a bit different of a, a of a guy by the end of the. So we see the progression of how God being in people's lives, how that changes. And I think it's much more pronounced with G Jesus and Paul. Like the more that Paul is living in the reality of who Jesus is, the more you start to see him change and adapt. And I think what we do as one of our greatest disservices to Paul is to take him as a monolithic theological a th theological tome of knowledge. Especially since it's unlikely that one person wrote all of the things um, ascribed to him, you know? Well, yeah, and I would also add, especially because he makes it very clear at least twice, if not more than that, that he's trying to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, and is it... Somewhere in Romans 9 to 11, where he's trying to figure out the whole Gentiles and Jews being grafted together, at one point he says, I don't know, I guess it's a mystery. Exactly. <laughs> right? Because he's done this super detailed, well-developed argument that in the end gets him to, I guess I don't know, because it's a mystery. <laughs> like, I think what, what we need to do with this topic or any other is we need to be more willing to wrestle with Scripture 
than to just look for the answers, right? Like, yes. And I know we don't like that because it'd be much easier, like I said, if scripture just told right. us X, Y, Z. And about some things it does, but at least, especially in terms of this issue, it does not do that. And so I think what Nate and I are trying to illustrate here is that we have both had to really wrestle with Paul, what he says and doesn't says, doesn't says, doesn't say, <laughs> you know, um, because it's just so much more complicated than um, it's always been presented to me, whether that's anything like Pauline uh, writing in general, or in, in this case, and in my case, in terms of what he may or may not say about homosexuality and gay relationships, um, it's just so much more complicated than we might wish that it were. Yeah, and I think that's like, so we need to pause because I think the next step is talking about those particular texts. And if you're following along, you're probably like, wait a second, you say you're going to talk about gay theology and 30 uh, minutes, you're talking almost 40 minutes, you're talking about women and Paul. What, what's the deal? Um, the way I would talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I would kind of, uh, the way I would approach that confusion is that for me in the journey that I had to take, I could not, because of my conservative background, I could not jump in into gay theology right away, theological questions. It just, I was one of those people who would say, well, it plainly says that homosexuality is a sin. Right. Because it says it right there, right? Yeah. I, you know, I just said it doesn't say it clearly. And some people are probably listening to this saying, what are you talking about? It says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, it says, you know, Romans one, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think maybe, maybe I should talk about that a little bit. And I want to say is what I'm going to do here is not lay out an ironclad exegetical case for why everything is fine. I think more what I want to do is just talk a little bit about how I have wrestled with these texts, um, Specifically, most of them are Paul because there's not, I mean, there's something in the law, but there's not a lot. And then the rest of it, I mean, there's like four places in the New Testament that mentions this at all. I mean, that's it. And so there's a lot that we could talk about. You know, there's a lot of linguistic arguments um, based on the two words they translate. But I mean, go with God if you want to look into that. I certainly did. But honestly, I'm not a linguist. And you read 10 different articles, and they'll tell you 10 different things. And they'll all sound, con uh, they'll all be convincing, because I don't know much about how language works in the way that those people do, right? Yeah. Um, though I do think it is. And by the way, exegetes are kind of crazy. I'm sorry. I know exegetes say the same thing about us practical theology people, but you you people are nuts. Well, I think that's the part of it, though, is that this kind of thing that so um, deeply affects my life and the life of other people, there has to be more to it than just grammar. Because uh, like, yeah. grammar is not something that should change your life. I'm sorry, it just whatever language you're, you're speaking or writing in. Um, <laughs> Talking so, like a true post-structuralist. Well, I uh, just, I mean, you know, like, sometimes I think those people who've not had to wrestle with this in the way that I have or other queer people have um, kind of gloss over the fact that so much of this is based on such a small amount of yeah. scripture, you know? And I, I guess the only thing linguistically that I think might be important for us to say, for me to say, is that I think one thing we miss is that things like the word homosexual, homosexuality or, or however that that is in there, that didn't appear in any English translation until 1946, right? It was the RSV that it first showed up in. And there's a lot of things you can look into about why and, and even some things they've said, maybe we shouldn't have translated it that way, but there's a lot to it. And I don't really want to go into that because that's dull. When I learned that, I stopped trying to, I, I really stopped using that word altogether. Yeah, there are really two words here that are kind of the crux of this, how they're translated into English from Greek. And you can look it up if you're interested. And, you know, whether you're a linguist or not, you can see that they've been translated very differently f across 
history, right? So I think that's enough for that. Um, because for me, I think the linguistic stuff was kind of just a starting point of wrestling with this. But as I said, by itself, it wasn't enough. Um, because I insist that grammar by itself is never enough. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think the other thing that happened for me, though, is I had, I was like, okay, so there's the language part, but what else might be going on historically with these texts? And I think the reason that's important is because uh, that was what I was taught to do with every other text as well, right? So, to use an example that will fit with what we've been talking about, so when Paul says women should be silent in the church, um, I was taught and shown sophisticated hermeneutic arguments for why Paul didn't mean that women have to be silent in the church forever. Um, and, you know, they didn't just say because we want it that way. They'd go into all there was linguistic stuff. There was what was going on in Corinth at the time. There was, um, you know, I mean, these would be 20 page articles that they'd write. And. Yeah. So my thought was, well, okay, if we're supposed to do that with with scriptures, and I mean, think of how many sermons you've heard where the pastor says some variation of, here's what was going on at the time, or you, to, to get at this, you got to understand Roman culture or whatever it is that they would have said. And so in my mind, it's like, okay, well, I need to do the same thing with these texts. And as I started doing that kind of research, a lot of which came from the book I mentioned last time um, by um, Boswell, but I think it's important. And by the way, this was never discussed for me either. Whenever this would come up, it was like gay, bad, right? Gay equals evil. Gay is gross, whatever you want to call yeah. it. But there was no discussion of what was going on historically. And I think there's a lot of things there that I think do affect it. And I don't think we have time to talk about all of them. So some of them, I guess we might talk about a little and some I'll just mention. But um, I think the two, well, there's a few that are that might be important. And the reason we're bringing this up is because I had to consider how these things affected what these texts might mean for me. And I guess for other people. Um, one of the things was you have to look at the empire, the Roman Empire at the time, right? Whenever these texts are being written in some period between whatever dates it was, not my, I don't care. Um, <laughs> there were things that would have been part of everyday life that um, not just Paul, everybody would know about. And one of the things I discovered in research was um, that it was certainly this way in ancient Greece. Um, where there was the this well-established tradition of the term for it is pederasty. And what that means is that an older man would have a relationship with usually a teenage boy. It wasn't like a, like a six-year-old or anything, usually a teenage boy. The idea being it was a way to kind of like get him set up in society and learn from this older man. But it was almost, well, it was always a sexual relationship as well right? That was just included in it. And this was something that was okay. Now, that I think, as I've found, was tended to be more frowned upon in Roman society. It wasn't like it was in Greece, but it was still a thing that happened, right? It, it was a thing that people knew about. And so what, what I think is involved in this is this understanding of these sexual relationships between two males is that a lot of them would have been um, an older man with a much younger, usually a teenager. And so what you're seeing there is some kind of sexually exploitative relationship. Um, and some people will say that's specifically what Paul's talking about. And I don't know many people who wouldn't say that that was bad, right? Like for some people yeah. that is in and of itself enough. And I, for me, I think because of what I said about it being complicated in terms of Greece and Rome and, and the empire and all of that, I do think that's involved. But I think, I think that there may be more to it than that as well. I think there were other kinds of uh, sexual relationships going on in the sense that male prostitution in the empire was a big industry, so much so that the empire taxed, taxed it, right? And some of these male prostitutes would be men, you know, dress like men, act like men, all of that. And some of them would dress like women. Um, and, you know, that was the idea. Like, I think that may also have been involved in what Paul was railing against or complaining about. Um, 
either a, a combination of these sexually, well, they're all sexually exploitative relationships, right? Um, whether it's man and teenager or man and prostitute, whatever way that is, it's the same kind of exploitative relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think for a long time, that was one of the things that really made me think, well, there must be more going on here than just homosexuality is wrong. Partly because, like I said, if you think about those two types of relationships, I hope you, I hope that you will never find a Christian that says that those kind of things are okay. And when I mean that, I don't mean that like it's evil to be a prostitute. I mean that sexual relationships shouldn't be exploitative, right? In which case, mm-hmm. yeah, I could see why Paul would include that in lists of like um, not inheriting the kingdom of God. Because there are people who do sexual violence, either to young or to people who are not able to, um, you know, they're not doing it. They have no power in the relationship, right? If you right. are the if you are the prostitute. So there's one other thing that's super important. But do you have any? Like, I don't know if you had looked into any of those things um, before I talk about the other one that was important for me. Yeah, so my journey is similar because, and it's from a different perspective, of course, because I'm not gay and I didn't explore it in the same way or at the same time that you did. But through the postmodern philosophy that I study with Emmanuel Levinas, uh, I started to hear more about this. And I don't think it was from you. I think it was from other people. Mm-hmm. I did my own research and found the same kind of things through different kinds of books that uh, relationships in the, well, if you can call them that, let's say sexual arrangements mm-hmm. were much different in the ancient world than they are today. Uh, and also strikingly similar, of course. But right. yeah. um, the difference being that there were cultural codes and norms around um sex these two things around well yeah around sex but mm-hmm. specifically these two types of right. uh, well, the pro- prostitution and this really social weird code that we don't have today anymore it, it, it's like a weird sexual internship um <laughs> yeah i mean it's is, terrible right like ugh. it's terrible yeah it's uh and that's exactly what what i started to think more and more is like Boy, there's a lot like today, the movement we're making uh, or at least striving to make and these kinds of things that are usually behind closed doors. They were just out in the public and accepted by everybody in the ancient world. And it's a a striking difference. Well, yeah, because I think we have to remember that Paul or whoever, when they wrote these letters, they're talking about things that people would know what they meant. Right. Like it, right. it would just they don't have to do this kind of work we're talking about because they know what what he means. Um, yeah. And for me, when it came to the the work that I'm doing, it's all about making sure that uh, you have this ethical treatment towards other people. Mm. Um, the, the philosopher that I study actually says that that's the prime uh, responsibility we have. Uh, and he doesn't do it from a moral perspective. He just does it from. Hey, when you recognize that somebody else needs something, something happens inside you. It changes. You have this this gut reaction that you've actually got to do something, and then we, you know, explain that away. Uh, but the takeaway for this conversation is to say that what I started to discover is that reading these uh, relationships or these contracts or these situations ethically started to bring a problematic element to the way that we read these texts. It's like, um, to put the best construction on Paul, he's probably thinking that these things are not cool to do because they violate how God has created us, the value imago dei part of uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and how Jesus has told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Mm-hmm. and. For me, that's what really started to resonate with both of these things is, okay, well, if there's a real problem from the way our modern sensibilities would say, in the way that we've arranged society with these sexual circumstances, it would seem very natural for Paul to say something about it. And it would also seem natural that maybe that would bleed over into things like gender roles, especially if 
Um, you know, men are dressing up as women. Um, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but the problematic uh, power dynamics that could result from that and how Paul would say, you know, women, you have to have long hair or whatever. Right. It is. Women be women and men be men. Yeah. Right. So all that makes sense to me. And that's uh, my little brief way of saying I kind of came to the same ideas, only it was, of course, from a totally different yeah. perspective. Well, and I think because there's one other large piece that I think if you ask me to summarize why I have been able to interpret these texts in a way that means for, you know, that uh, homosexual relationships are not bad or sinful. I think this is the biggest one for me. And I think it puts together the pieces of the other ones. So we, the reason, one of the reasons we started this talking about gender roles is because I think these verses that mention this are wrapped up in those gender roles and that's what's going on here. So let me explain. Um, there's a lot going on in this, but um, I think it has to do with, honestly, Roman sexual mores, right? So their views of sex and gender. And one of the things that was understood was that, um, you know, the same types of things about men in terms of marriage and all of that. So they're in charge. They're um, the one who guides the relationship. They're the ones that are submitted to, right? Those same attitudes are also present in their views of sex. So um, men in terms of sex are supposed to be the active or penetrating partner, whereas women are supposed to be the submissive or penetrated partner, right? I mean, that's, that's what's going on in terms of just basic sexual um, viewpoints then. That was kind of what everybody knew. And, you know, men could have sex with people below their own social station, right? And it was no shame to them unless it was someone um, the other, unless it was the other way around. So a person could have sex with his slaves, ma male or female, and there was no shame upon the, the, that person for doing that because he was doing what was expected, right? He was exercising power and authority. He was the um, penetrator, right? Like he was the active partner, like everything was going on as it should. Mm -hmm. And what I think was going on with a lot of this is that he, what you'll see is that in, even in terms of just like two adult men, if they were in a relationship, the active partner in the sexual act, right? There was no shame for him regardless because he was just doing what men do. But the one that was treated with shame, the one that was looked down upon, the one that was doing something absolutely disgusting and terrible was the other person, the one who was um, the receptive partner in that act. Because, why? Because then a man was doing what a woman is supposed to do, right? A man was being submissive. A man was being um, receiving. A man was doing all of these things that, as we said earlier, men just don't do. Um and so I think when you look at it that way, given all of the things that Paul says about gender, right, I think these things he says where some form of um, same-sex behavior is going on, I think what he's maybe so incensed about is that men are not acting like men, as he understands it, and women are not acting like women, right? I, I think... I think that may also be why you see only one mention of women having sex with women in the Bible. And even that, it's in Romans 1, right? It's it's hard to know. Like, it's, a, it's an aside at best. You know, you don't see anything in the law about it being um, an abomination for a woman to have sex with a woman. Because I think because that, that doesn't violate the gender norms in the same way that men with men would. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was one of the big questions for me. It's like, well, wait a minute. If homosexuality is wrong, how come it wasn't until Rome that God decided to say so? Right. But that's kind of a, a side issue. Um, but I think what I put all of that together is what I see here is like, you know, Paul is consistent with the gender norms that he explains elsewhere in his writings, right? This is, you know, Paul says women should have long hair, men should have short hair, women should be silent in church, men should be the ones who talk. Um, women should have head coverings, men should not cover their heads. Similarly, men, when having sex, should be the active partner and women should be the, the submissive partner and men should not be. I, I think when you put all of that together, 
I think that leaves me in a place of like, well, unless I am going to subscribe to Paul's views on gender across the board, then that leaves me in a place where if nothing else, I have to seriously question the way these verses about, um, you know, sexual homosexual relationships have been interpreted because none of that was ever taught to me. And it sure seems like it would be involved in, in how you would understand those things. I mean, what do, I don't know if that, that stuff ever came up for you, but what do you make of that? <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> you're right. That's, that's the key problem. Uh, and you highlight it so well as we were taught that scripture is pretty clear on this and therefore we don't need to talk about it. I remember very clearly, I think it isn't the women and uh, their norms in worship. That's first Corinthians 14. Is that right? I think it's, um, it's in anyway, there. Yeah. Somewhere around there. It's in there. Uh, we're showing we're not exigent <laughs> pretty easily. Um, I mean, somebody at the seminary made a a name for himself by really parsing that out and showing how women can, in fact, have short hair and this, that, and the other, and wear makeup and so forth. And and yet, you're They're so glad you're, to hear that. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it is amazing that we don't like the word. Uh, one of the words you haven't used it, but one of the words to describe it uh, that. Power dynamic is pedias, or pederasty. Pederasty. Yep. See, I can't even say it because we're not taught that word. I had to learn that afterwards. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but we weren't taught that that is the nature of a lot of the sexual relationships. Um, one that you didn't mention because we kind of glossed over it because it's still true uh, is the uh, prostitution usually had occultic a dimension to it. Well, I don't know if it usually did, but I mean, but that was certainly one of the large ways that you saw it then. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's the religious power dynamic that comes from that where somebody is, um, you know, I don't want to go into it, but there is a religious power dynamic to that too. And we didn't even talk about that, right? which is such a basic reality in this world that, um, prostitution just it doesn't just mean uh, to make ends meet and you know sex work and all that kind of stuff. It actually has a religious component to mm-hmm. it, and so in some forth. cases, yeah, in like cases, the, yeah, people would go to the temple of I think exactly. ISIS was one of the ones they mentioned where this would happen, and you know, having sex with a priest or a priestess would be a way to you know, show devotion to that particular God or goddess or whatever. So I, I, I think, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, there's, but see the fact that, that we could even almost forget to mention that one, because it kind of shows how much is in the background of all of these things. And exactly, you know, yeah. Paul doesn't explain those things because I suspect the Corinthians and the Romans and, uh, you know, Timothy or whoever, they would know. They would know which ones he meant, or maybe that he meant all of them, or um, it would be clear. He wouldn't have to explain that. You know, he's not going to get up there and give a a discussion on Roman sexual mores like we just did, (laughs) because they know it, right? Yeah. Um, And I think you're right. Like, the biggest problem with me, for for me, at least, this was like a big moment in my exploration of this, was asking that key question, why don't we talk about this? Like. I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and think that we're trying to hide from something, you know, that could be happening psychologically in some sense, but I think that the reality that we don't talk about some of these things behind the text just shows the lack of care and the lack of willingness to dive deep and challenge ourselves. And if I were to explain my journey, it would be in that form of challenge, right? Because we've talked on this podcast how a lot of these things we had to challenge, whether it's something like the cultural wars of the 1990s or all the way up until how uh, my tradition sees the Holy Spirit. Uh, So why... So for me, the journey has been more, this is just another step, and it's an important step, but a step in the 
let's challenge what's been given to us because there's a lot more going on. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it's not a grand conspiracy. I think there's a much simpler explanation for why generally we haven't looked into this is because most people, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, 90, what, 95, 96% of the population, this doesn't matter for in the sense right. that like um, their lives aren't really affected by it um, unless they have a gay family member or something. I think honestly, the easy explanation for why we weren't taught these things, or at least why they weren't brought up as possibilities was because, you know, if you're straight, it, it's easy to just move on from that. No one's saying you can't get married or adopt children. No one's saying you're going right. to hell for being just, you know, uh, being who you are or any of those things. So they don't need to. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's always malicious. I mean, sometimes I guess it might be malicious. There are bigots out there who are trying to hurt gay people, but I think generally it's more benign than that. Well, and that's the wrong word. I th is it more banal than that? You know, no, like yeah. it's just people don't even think about it because they don't have to. Um, and I think one of the things you and I have said on this podcast about almost everything we've talked about is like, you got to think about these things. You can't like if you truly want to love your neighbor as yourself, you can't just dismiss people's lives, whether it's about this topic or not, you know. Right. Um, so I guess just to bring it back around for me is, you know, like I said earlier, I, I come from this tradition that has sophisticated arguments for why Paul's gender norms don't apply to us anymore. You know, like we don't believe women have to be silent in the church, even though it very clearly says that, right? To use an often <laughs> right. phrase I've heard yeah. a lot. Um, <laughs> but also, a lot of the norms that Paul talks about, we also don't follow, and I don't think we should. Like, I, I do not believe that women are inferior to men in any way. And I think Paul did. Now, I know that gets into some uncomfortable territory for some because of things like inspiration and how scripture works and all of that. But I just, I, you'll never convince me that what God wants is for men to abuse women. And I don't mean necessarily physically, but I just right. like, unless you're going to accept Paul's gender norms across the board, you can't just pick the ones you want to follow and not the others. Or if you can, nobody has ever given me a rule for how you know which ones are okay and which ones aren't. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think, I think I want to say it's as simple as that. It's not simple. We've just spent an hour talking about it, but, um, I think when I look at these texts through the lenses of ancient gender norms that don't apply, um, I think I'm comfortable saying they don't apply to me in the way that people have told me they apply. Um, they apply to me in the sense that I should not be in sexually exploitative relationships, right? Yeah. Uh, they apply to me in that I should not engage in pederasty or cultic prostitution or, you know, those kinds of things. Sure. Just like nobody should. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that also kind of shows that something else we miss is this discussion. It, all of it in and of itself is somewhat anachronistic in that the kind of things we're talking about, like the idea of a committed relationship between two people of the same gender was not something they understood, right? I mean, even like say the there were emperors who had same gender people they obviously had sex with, they were also married to women, right? Like this was the idea that someone has the orientation from birth or however that works, being towards the same gender and not the other was not something they understood. The The concept of being gay is a fairly recent uh, invention, historically speaking. Um, and so I think you have to acknowledge that too, is that so much is different. And we got to be careful how we just say it clearly says something when just like you and I have brought up, it's maybe not all that clear. What would a conservative who's listening to this, if they've gotten this far, <laughs> what would they benefit from? And I think that at the very least, I would hope for more, but at the very least, if you want people like me to take you seriously, when it comes to these arguments, you have to grapple with the stuff we've talked about here. You cannot just say, Gay sex is gross and 
unnatural, which is basically what the orders of creation thing is all about. Right. Um, you can't just say that and rely on theology to overwhelm me because I'm past that. Mm-hmm. And I have yet to see, and I, I haven't been, you know, voraciously looking at it, but I have yet to see somebody cogently grapple with those things and then come out on the other side and say, therefore, gender roles are still good. Right. Well, and, you know, if you want to have a conversation with me about this, <laughs> I'm willing to do that. Not everybody is, but I'm willing to do that. But it's got to, like, even though we've presented things in an intellectual, like, this is how we walked through it since, the conversation can't just be that either, right? Right. I think the point of us doing this today was not to convince any of you that you must change your mind, although, you know, great, fine. I hope you do, but that's not my goal. My goal is like as much as it is possible for someone who isn't me, can you try to put yourself in my shoes as I've gone on this journey, as I have narrated it in the last podcast and this one. And, you know, maybe if you start there, just asking yourself, what must that have been like? How would I feel if that were me, you know? And you're not going to get what it was for me because you're not me, right? But yeah. I think just that simple question of like, what must that have been like for this other person who is not me, these other people who are not me, who've had experiences that are not mine, like you can't do them yourself, but you could ask, what would I feel like? What would it feel like to me if I did? You can wonder about that. You can ask that question. And I'm, for speaking personally, I'm much more willing to entertain those kinds of conversations than I am like to, for you to tell me or me to tell you why, um, you know, Malakoy means this or doesn't mean that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, Cause I think that, like we said, that only gets you so far it's important, but it's not enough. And I think it's as far as most people have gone, if they've gone that far at all. Can we ask the question, what does this mean in terms of other than just whatever doctrine we can form out of it? Right. Like, what does this mean in the lives of people? What does this mean for how the gospel is understood and perceived? Like that kind of those kind of questions have been mostly foreign uh, or absent from this discussion because, well, this is what it means. That's what the words say. It's like, well, okay, great. Yeah. And that would be really interesting. Like we didn't talk about this at all and we're not going to rehash anything, but um, it's a, in the Lutheran paradigm, this is a very law centered conversation. Yeah. Uh, there is, you mentioned that word, there is no gospel conversation here at all, except to say that because homosexuality, if that is a thing is a sin, then therefore when you confess, you're forgiven and so right. forth. Um, but that's not really a grace conversation. That's still just a law conversation where grace is playing second fiddle to the law. Yeah. I guess, you know, I guess maybe what I'm asking for for myself, again, speaking just for me, for Ryan, because I cannot speak for anybody else but me. What I would like as as someone who has been hurt by um, the church, by Christians, by um you know, generally straight white people, because I'm a white people too. You know, are you willing to put yourself in the place of the abused person? And I don't mean that you have to be abused yourself necessarily. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is like, can you at least in your in your thoughts and in your prayers and in your heart, can you really dwell on what that might have been like? Um, because I think if you do that, that maybe that maybe will lead you to see this in a different way that's not just doctrine. You know, what I think of, not to take away with, from what you said, because I want, want you to be the finishing voice there, but Levy and I would talk about the stranger, widow, and orphan, and that uh, in a true, because he's a He's a Jew. So in a truly Jewish ethic, that is who we pay attention to. And, you know, what what you said just started to spiral my mind more back to that power conversation, that power dynamic of how uh, 
privilege. Yeah. How you're able not to think about this stuff because you don't have to. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's just what I was thinking. Yeah. And, and what Levinas really pushes us towards is no, you do have to think about it. In fact, don't think about it from your perspective. Think of it from the perspective of a stranger, widow, orphan, or in this conversation, me, you. Yeah. Cause that's the other thing I want to clarify is that I, I can't necessarily put all gay people or trans people or anybody in that same experience. So for what we're talking about, and I can't, you know, I can't talk on their behalf. So for, on, for this conversation, let's just say the widow, the orphan and Ryan. Um, and I think, I think that's my request. I, I think the discussion that we had in terms of all of the Bible stuff and theology stuff and all of it was important. And it is important because it was part of this journey. But I hope you don't leave this episode of the podcast with only that. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, that though, these things, you know, Nate and I didn't discover these. These weren't like our revelation that we're publishing and are going to be huge name scholars now. I mean, this stuff has been out for a while. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I just, yeah, uh, hopefully you will think about it in a new way. And let's start there and let doctrine sort itself out later. Thank you for listening to our conversation. Again, we didn't really come to a conclusion for uh, what we're talking about today, um, but really where we are on that journey in this frontier. And uh, I think this is one of those times where Ryan and I are basically kind of in the same place, but for different reasons. And um, it just looks different because we're different people. Yeah. If you um, have any questions, any feedback, any thoughts, and you want to share those, go ahead and send those to FrontierFaithPodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page that will link us to our website. Um, if you just go to Facebook and search for Frontier Faith Podcast. And uh, next week, we're going to do a similar thing to what we've done the last two weeks with my story, but we're going to look at something from Nate's story um, for our, you know, well project or whatever we're calling it. Um, so I hope you'll join us for that. I, I know what it's about, so <laughs> it's going to be good. I don't, I'm not going to tell you because uh, let Nate tell us all. Um, but I hope you'll join us for that. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And, uh, you know, like I always like to say, um, and, you know, people can remind me of this when I'm worrying about things. <laughs> it's okay. It's going to be okay. And God will take care of us. 